Welcome to Film Fight Club, the final Film Fight Club of the year. I'm Glenn Falkenstein from Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Wake up, sheeple. That's what we're here for, and freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Happy holidays, people. <laughs> the optimist versus the pessimist. Which is basically what this and the other Matrix films are about, which we'll be getting into. It's our biggest episode of the year. We're discussing The Matrix Resurrections, which is in cinemas on Boxing Day, as well as West Side Story, which has a Boxing Day release. Going to the podcast, we're going to be talking a little bit about Spider-Man and Licorice Pizza and elaborating on the same in the new year. Also in the new year, we'll be talking about The Unforgivable, The Worst Person in the World, and a few other things that will be have releases over January in this period. But it is Red a Rocket episode. And Red, Red Rocket, Rocket, January 5th. I'm really looking forward to that one. But let's get straight into Matrix Resurrections. It is a direct sequel to the last three Matrix films, first of which released in 1999, director Lana Wachowski. It is starring Keanu Reeves, Carrie Ann Moss, and a number of actors from the original, including a number of new actors, Jessica Henwick, Yahad Abdul-Mateen, Christina Ricci. Oh, Jonathan Groff's in it too. In the Matrix Resurrections, we meet Thomas Anderson, played by Keanu Reeves. His character, who is a game designer, is not exactly content with the world he is living in and begins to question elements thereof. And as per the trailer and a very large portion of the film, it is very unclear to the audience as to what the hell, the hell is, going is going on, on akin to the first Matrix film. There's a lot of things I liked about this film. There's a lot of things I didn't like. I appreciated that it is a, a distinct picture from the other three. It follows a logical extension of the original story while telling a distinct story, as I feel the other three did. There is a lot of meta commentary of meta filmmaking itself, most of which is not ironic, some of which it was, where it had elements, I think, that let the film down. But I liked that it had a mature approach to recognizing that the impact of The Matrix as a film on our universe and on popular culture, even if there were just too many bits in the film that directly allude to the first Matrix. And by that, I mean literally playing clips of the first Matrix, which had some function, but then I think the function which just became overwhelming as the film went on. The film frames itself as a return to the first matrix with that opening text spill going forward and then backwards. The thing is, before we get introduced to Thomas Anderson, we get introduced to a whole bunch of interesting new characters that really hook you early in this film. A, uh, a new character that resembles Trinity and Morpheus sort of smashed together and remixed in Bugs, played by Jessica Henwick. We meet an interesting new version of Morpheus, played by Yahya Abdul-Mateen. I think it's new. It's different. It's the synchronous. And it really, I think, typifies the problems of this script, that the movie never does anything with these fascinating new Matrix characters we meet. Mm -hmm. Early on, this movie has the kind of, um, some people will say this is a pejorative, but it has a little bit of the buzz that the intro sequences of The Force Awakens had, where it's like these characters are, are doing a journey like the first Star Wars film. They're similar characters, but... They're remixed. It's, you know, it's an expanded kind of homage. But this movie ends up being what I think the nerds were hoping for from the Star Wars uh, sequel trilogy, which is a movie where the newcomer characters are just a means to an end. And once the Luke Skywalker re-enters the picture, his awesomeness is so immense that it just dominates the plot and they get left by the wayside. Can anyone say that the climax of this film was satisfying for the Bugs character? She's so interesting and we get so much screen time for her at the beginning of this film. 
that it feels like we're being introduced to the new co-protagonist of this story. But nope. She's by what far I mean the most when I say character. that I think this example... Exactly. Actually, no, um, I take and, that back. Uh, um, Yahab Dormantini's, he's great. The premise, which, and speaking of Force Awakens, it just draws directly from the Finn character. Yeah, it absolutely Very does. Good. I won't give away what he is. But, but it's great. Um, it's great. It's, but it should have played into the plot and created more complications and interesting drama because it's a setup for that and it never happens. What I mean when I say that this typifies the problems of the film is that this seems like a half-baked script to me. This seems like a script that needs another revision because all the interesting material is in the setup and a little bit in the middle and a whole bunch of interesting characters and threads don't get developed and the movie gets overwhelmed by this long protracted exposition dump in the middle. All the best ideas are in the opening act. I completely agree. I think uh, the problem with this film is that it's a film of two halves where the setup and what seems within the Matrix as such that we introduced to in the beginning are way more interesting in terms of world building and what new elements are brought in. But the second half of the film becomes a generic broad thread kind of a thing of things we've seen before in terms of matches. And that old character really I remember. Me, yeah. And what really disappointed me was that Matrix was a phenomenon when it first released in terms of interesting ways to film action, uh, interesting mishmash of philosophy and uh, ideas and pushing the, the narrative in new directions. This, on the other hand, failed on all those accounts, whereas all I was reminded of was how good the first Matrix was and how terrible this is. Whenever right. this film had to reference the first film. Okay, I don't think this is terrible. I think this is actually a really good film. I think this is a lot better than most action films that are coming out at the moment. I think this is genuinely creative, as said. I think we have a problem here, and we're going to talk about this when we talk about West Side Story, in that you can compare it to... I compare this to the standard of both modern filmmaking and the classic Matrix films. It is certainly better than modern filmmaking. It is certainly not as good as the original Matrix movie. While it does try to capture the element of the wonder of the original, this is the fact that the Matrix is so saturated in popular culture, which in fairness, the film does recognize. It doesn't try or aspire to be quite like the first Matrix film. More to that, and let's speak to the action. The action simply isn't as good for two reasons. Number one, it's not as well shot. The original Matrix films, all three of them to their credit, the camera is very removed, it's very cleanly shot, and the choreography and fight sequences are just better. And part of this is that the main actors who are the basis of the action, in particular Keanu Reeves, um, simply isn't as good a physical action star as he was during the Matrix films or even during the first two John Wick films. That's fine. He's at a different stage of his career, but the action is both crowded That's and not as well choreographed and not as well staged by the performers. If Keanu can't do it, that's what Jessica Henwick is there for. And right? she's great. You know, have the old master and the, the young apprentice who does most of the heavy lifting in the action. Easy. Yeah. And Jessica Henwick is great, as we saw in the otherwise terrible Iron Fist. She was good in it. I, I want to underline what you're saying about the action a bit more. It's shocking that we're watching The Matrix 4 and it has not only underwhelming, but I would say a little bit average or below average action sequences. Um, and it's not just the physical performance of Keanu Reeves, it's the way that it's shot. This whole film seems like a kind of cheap production to me in a lot of ways, uh, or certainly a too cheap production for a Matrix movie. Maybe this is these restrictions are partly because of COVID and the expense and restrictions that come there, but it's shot all kind of like multi-cameras running at once uh, uh, with not that many interesting frames that feel like they've been thought out. 
I would say most of the really interesting frames and images in this film are in the trailer. So when it comes to the action, there isn't that sense of it being visually plotted out and moving fluidly like in the original Matrix film. Instead, it feels like there's a bunch of handheld cameras in multicam capturing a bunch of different angles and they've just been jumbled together in the editing. It's a mess. It's hard to follow. It's uh, hard to figure out where people are in relation to each other. When bullet time or slow motion-esque effects kick in, it feels lazy and uh, random. But honestly, the action in this is so bad that I think it's going to lead to a lot of speculation that Lily Wachowski was the more imaginative action visualist or director. Okay, this film actually does acknowledge COVID. There are characters on trains, for instance, with masks. And it's that's, something... it, that's shown in Japan, though. But if you've been on a train in Japan, I haven't. Okay. All right. Okay. Fair, fair, may, fair but enough. it's possible that it was added to the film in light of COVID. Okay. Now, speaking to the action, while I do, don't really like very much how it's shot, I do appreciate the creativity and ingenuity of many of the set pieces. There's an amazing sequence later that happens on a motorcycle with a particularly scary innovation as to how a AI element tries to target our heroes, which I found very, very interesting. I'm involving a number of, a very significant number of casualties. That's, that's the standout action bit of the Now I would say that's the only great action scene in the film. I disagree. I think there's a number of really other good innovations, including the use of doors and how people travel between different areas. No, 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 no. That's the only good action scene. The doors were awesome. There's a bunch of good ideas. I though I think it's absolutely an action scene. It's it's it becomes a foot chase. It takes it away from the status element where and, and this is something that's good in the original Matrix films. Um, like in the 2000s, you had to get a phone to get somewhere. And suddenly we're in a different world. We're in a different environment. So there's a different logic for being able to travel between places, which shows some really creative action set pieces and, and travel, but also some um, really great visuals that are used throughout the film. And I really appreciated this. Well, when it introduced us to those characters doing that bit at the beginning of the film, I thought we're going back to the source, back to William Gibson-esque cyberpunk ideas, an update on The Matrix. The more and more I think about this film, the more and more I agree with Virat that we should have had almost all of it set within the Matrix exploring these new ideas and had way less of the real world stuff. All right. Now, talking about the philosophical elements of the film, I think this film, again, introduces, you can't really talk about without spoilers, a distinct story which deals with nostalgia and how we view ideas. Um, to expand on The Force Awakens, um, analogy. There's a feeling of, oh, are elements of the first Matrix film myth? Um, how do we perceive it? It's uh, which I find interesting. Um, in terms of the philosoph philosophy of the film, I don't mind the exposition dumps. I actually like that as an element in the first film. I, again, this is the bit where it gets quite philosophically dense. The problem for me is that unlike in the other Matrix films, they seek to tie up this film and explain a lot more than in the other films. In the others, um, the action and what happened left it a great deal more open. And leaving a great deal more open allowed for more speculation, but also allowed for more opportunity to otherwise stage action or introduce philosophical elements. I think there's a very, there's a keenness in this to tie it up and make it clear as to what this film is about. And in that, um, which is unlike the Matrix films, I think this film really loses something. I think we could have gotten a lot more from something like the Jonathan Groff character, who, by the way, he's great, but it was very clear this character was um, written slightly differently and intended for someone else. Um, also, I quite like the 
Barney, so the, I say the Barney says extra. That's an interesting Freudian slip. I quite like the Neil Patrick Harris character. But speaking to, I think, the main four of this film, I appreciate how this film is meta. I appreciate this film, how this film provides commentary on being meta. But in the moments where it becomes ironic, it becomes frustrating. Um, there are bits where I think it's deliberate. Neil Patrick Harris goes into elements that are like Barney Stinson. There's a bit that's directly relevant to the Keanu Reeves sandwich meme. Um, and the bit with a actor returning from the Matrix Reloaded, I think, isn't handled well, because it's just this bad joke. And I feel there's good elements of how this film treats meta, and there's bad elements where it tends into the too ironic. This movie is a completely knowing, almost fourth wall breaking meta take that basically. More than fourth wall breaking in many moments where they talk about the filmmaking itself. In an early scene in this film, it's essentially admitted that this movie was made because of corporate obligation. Um, yeah, I think the most interesting parts of, of this film, uh, especially in the first half in the setup, yeah. were exploring some of these threads about uh, the genesis of the film and uh, where the film should go and where the film is going. I really felt from a philosophical point of view, the film was trying to explore some of these elements. They were carried through in the second half. But unfortunately, what disappointed me was that a lot of these threads were just left dangling with interesting ideas thrown on the wall, whether or not they stick, and then they would never pick up back up again. So I think that was really disappointing with how generic the film well, becomes it. in the second half. And it was really that's it. The generic is exactly it. The setup of this film is so promising. The ending's not generic. I like the ending. We move between... Um, uh, more on that later. We, we move between new characters who are interesting and uh, doing new compelling twists on Matrix type stuff like the doors you mentioned and a meta comedy about neo as a man stuck in a in a cycle of reboots being forced to revisit the matrix for a fourth time that all of that stuff is strong and it works well together what i would like to have seen what actually happened is revealed later what i would have liked to have seen which virat touched on after we walked out of the screening is for the meta aspects to be deepened in universe, for that plot to play out a bit more. Um, I, I feel like the film should have had the confidence in its setup, um, in the freshness of what it's introducing to us early on and deepened and stuck with that. But instead, what ends up happening, as Virat said, is generic. Once we get back to the land of exposition dumps, the real world carrying on its purpose from the Matrix Reloaded, which is boring as hell, by the way, the, the, all these exposition dumps on uh, about how we live now and what's changed since the last Matrix movies. I found but, it as, um, about as grounding as the other films. Once, once, but it's just, it's so talky. It adds to the TV-like feeling of this movie. Like Lana Wachowski has just been really influenced by her days on Sense8 and it's made her lazy as a filmmaker. So it's just shoot it all multicam and handheld and we'll give some talky-talky exposition dumps. It's so lacking well, in interesting visuals. But anyway. I still, um, I still feel Sense8 was slightly more interesting visually. Well, maybe that's Lily Wachowski's influence. Yeah, once we get to the real world, suddenly all these genre templates are entering into it. There's a little bit of a zombie movie type thing going on later on. But before that, we've got like a generic heist movie type setup. The movie slows to a crawl because it takes so long to get to the next action bit between all the setup stuff. Everyone's talking about how wild and fresh this movie is. But the reason it's a disappointment to me is that it goes from being wild and fresh to being so completely typical. I said to Virat, like, really, as we were watching it, this is like the best we can do for the Matrix 4 as some of these plot aspects kicked in. 
And it does redeem itself somewhat in the climax. I agree with you. I think the, the lead into the final action set piece of the film is brilliant. I would have collapsed the film down completely if I were in charge here. But the problem about the good aftertaste of this ending is that this ends on an image which I think is meant to be one of renewal, return, um, and uh, triumph but it has the tragic desperation of midlife crisis. Man, the final image of this film is so embarrassing. Uh, did you I guys think, react so strongly against that as I, I did? As, if you talk about the very, very final image, I, I yeah. no, I had, the, the, I had the opposite reaction. I thought it was, I thought it was nice. I thought it was consistent without, while giving us something new. Um, I thought it was a, I, I thought it was a nice visual too. I can't elaborate, but conceptually, what the, some of the, this ending is doing is good. I just don't think the tone is really nailed at the climax. It was, now, it speaking... was too uh, Christmassy for me <laughs> in a film that probably isn't going for that Christmas vibe or, or kind of you know happy holidays kind of feel. Um, it didn't feel Christmassy to me. Again, I I think the only element that it lets the film down is that. It feels too neat for the reasons discussed earlier, but I'm fine with the tone and what it was otherwise imparting. Again, it seems a little crazy, but what we're talking about, the, the plot of this film is a logical extension of the universe that is already set up. So I didn't mind. I liked the, I did like the ending to that effect. I'm turning to, again, some of the meta aspects of this film. I think with The Matrix, so much, unfortunately, and obviously to the great chagrin of the Wachowskis, the iconography in the Matrix has been co-opted by elements that they are not in favor. I'm obviously referring to um, how the term the red pill is often used in popular culture. Now, I think the film has to reckon with this because the elements that were so central to the first film and the song we played earlier about how, you know, you're get out of the system, you're, you're distinct, you're better than this, um, elements thereof have obviously been co-opted and are championed by elements that the Wachowskis have been uh, both, I think, implicitly in the Matrix, but open public, vocally critical of. I think this is something the film has to reckon with if it's going to make a film in 2021. And I think it does this quite well. I think it doesn't overuse the red pill, blue pill iconography. I believe it reckons, and as before, it reckons with the history of the Matrix and a world, the impact that has had on our culture and then doesn't try to rewow us. It doesn't assume that people haven't seen the original Matrix film. It takes the audience as mature and says, you're familiar with these elements. You're familiar with these tropes, even if you haven't seen the Matrix, and we're going to give you something a little different and reckon with how these ideas um, can be both positive and harmful. And I think that is a good approach. So I appreciated the film for that. It's mostly not too on the nose. Yeah. I just have to talk about how cheap it is visually. It's shocking how budget strapped this is and also how well they've hidden this in the marketing. As soon as the film opened, I thought, wow, these are some cheap looking sets. Uh, why is this shot on cheap looking sets? Why is this not on location when- Shoot it in Haymarket. Hey, Sydney, we'll shoot it for you. Yeah, exactly. Sydney gave it so much character, the, those real city streets shot imaginatively. Here we're on a bunch of really bad looking sound stages. And you could say this is a restriction because of COVID. We just have to live with it. But you watch a movie like Eyes Wide Shut. And yeah, that, that's shot on sets. But they're amazing, imaginative looking sets. This just looks cheap. A lot of it looks cheap. It, the sense of cheapness that you get from the unimaginative framing and staging and shooting is just heightened by the horrible art direction. Like the, the real world and uh, the new robot designs that we see 
uh, immeasurably worse than the really striking iconic ones from the original films. The CGI of the real world um, outside of artistic aspects often looks worse than it did in The Matrix 2 and 3. A lot of this movie is really flatly lit. It's, it's, there's a sequence that's shot on location near the end of the climax of the film, which has beautiful cinematography um, and uh, the best CGI in the film. And, uh, you know, is shot on real city streets. So you have to wonder, again, as Virat said, as we were watching it, if this is where all of the money went and they were just a really budget strapped production, did Warner Brothers say, okay, you can make a movie that takes the piss out of us on a limited budget. And that was the deal. Who knows? I'm just speculating here, but something went wrong in the budgeting for this. This yeah, a Matrix clear. movie. It should have been smaller scale if they had to work on such a cheap budget because this honestly lets down the visual legacy of these films, which is quite a, a major one. To be clear, there is an element of the production design when it comes to the Matrix-like elements, which is attempting to impress a genericism to this world. However, I would argue that in agreement with Chris, that this is something that was also inherent to the staging of the Sydney scenes, i.e. the Matrix scenes in the original Matrix film. And there's no reason that, like with those scenes when it was shot in Sydney, and we're not just talking of Sydney ciders, it can visual visual fakery, visual cities, um, meta worlds, digital worlds can have their own distinct identity, which I think is also yeah. a core part in this film. Remember, like, I think this, similar to The Matrix Reloaded, deals with entities who are seeking to create a world that is functional and distinct and therefore i think it actually would have been in service of the plot if like in the first one the milieu had had its own visually striking in its own sense and had its own distinct identity from the zion real world mm. and that's and the zion element isn't something we've even gotten into but i think that will get into spoilers so we'll leave that but yes but, um it could have been more visually know, distinct and striking and this and remember the other one was the other ones were over 20 years ago um, the tech is available as it was back then. And remember, bullet time, these filmmakers were revolutionary in how we, it, mainstream cinema, approached a lot of shooting styles. Uh, we're going to talk about Spider-Man in a bit. And the first Spider-Man film, a lot of other films, Equilibrium just took directly from The Matrix. I question whether, if to any extent, films comparably in the immediate future will draw from this film as uh, they did from the original Matrix film. I honestly, and, and that, again, that's not a huge criticism because I think it's good in and of itself. It's just not as revolutionary or inspiring as the first Matrix film. Though obviously, I think very much still it's worth a, different a watch. Piece. I think it's, it's a different. I, piece. I still recommend it. Neil Patrick Harris was awesome, by the way. Yeah, except actually, when he yeah. fell into Barney Stinson mode. Uh, I and mind. I think I think Glenn touched upon something which is the crux of the matter, which is the fact that uh, Matrix as a legacy, and and Chris, you touched upon this. From a visual legacy point of view, there's always been a set of films that have pushed the boundaries yeah. in some way. And this film, for the majority of it, felt such a rehash and a retread of old ideas that you kind of felt so disappointed that this is what the Matrix, something which was the pioneer of new ideas and pushing boundaries of action, had come down to. Especially... And I think the disappointment is more of that and a combination of, oh my God, if this is what has come to the Matrix and become of the Matrix, then imagine what other films have hope in terms of pushing the boundaries of uh, what our limitations need to be and what the future of action and, you know, intelligent action will be blockbusters. It's, it's not just not visually striking, it's televisual. So for Americans who can see this day one on HBO Max, thinking you have to go out to the theater for a Matrix movie, I'd actually say you really don't. This is going to make a lot of sense as a director streaming. 
Yeah, it's sad. I'm not, it's sad for me, but I don't know. Maybe for a lot of people with the convenience of having HBO Max and their TV screens, maybe it's good for them. I don't know. I don't know what the future of cinema holds. <laughs> that is The Matrix Resurrections. It is in cinemas from Boxing Day. You're listening to Film Fight Club and 2CR with Glenn Falcon, Stan Chris Evans, and Varat Nehru. In the last five minutes, we're going to be talking about West Side Story, going into the podcast and West Side Story, and it's touching on Spider Man and Licorice Pizza in the podcast. West Side Story is the new adaptation of the Leonard Bernstein, Stephen Sondheim musical. Stephen Sondheim sadly passed away uh, only just a couple of weeks ago at the age of 91. We caught the premiere last week. It is based on Romeo and Juliet, and it has also very famously been adapted in 1961. This is the latest version since then, 60 years later, a long gestating and awaited project from director Steven Spielberg with a screenplay by Tony Kushner. It is starring Ansel Elgort, Rachel Ziegler, Rita Marino, and a number of newcomers it is set in the 50s in on the west side in new york between two gangs the jets and the sharks a group of white new yorkers and a group of puerto ricans who are more recent immigrants to the country and tension between them is each seeking greater control of the territory when tony from the jets and maria from the sharks fall for each other as romeo and juliet did. This, for me, poses a similar issue to the Matrix films in that you can compare it to modern musicals or and you can compare it to the very significant legacy of that which came before both the musical and the original film. It's material I was indeed to do as a child and throughout my life. Broadly speaking, I think this mostly complements the original and also is very good in that Steven Spielberg brings his consummate and regularly reliable, very good flair to this. And therefore, I enjoyed this and recommend it. And obviously, we'll look forward to going into much further details for why I think this is a good film with some flaws. It's also the Jeremy Robbins musical, right? And because, uh, yeah, he conceptualized it and his choreography is very important to the show, so much so that it's been translated right over into this film. You get to see the very distinctive West Side Story ballet-inspired dancing. And uh, Spielberg has very much tried to make a new adaptation of the musical as opposed to a remake of the original film. It's a new script by Tony Kushner, as you said. I think the film can't completely escape its old-fashionedness. And it has a kind of maddened approach that's typical of later Spielberg. But I think as it gets into heavier dramatic territory, his powers of emotional manipulation went out again. <laughs> I, I was moved by the film. I appreciate the, the, the operatic grandeur of it. Interesting. Uh, I didn't have any previous knowledge of the West Side Story, uh, the film or musical. So I went completely blind. I know, I'm sorry, I'm an uncultured... Uh, you are. You're cultured in different things. Well, West Side Story has, it hasn't grown in popularity. It's not one like The Sound of Music, which is as popular as it was even 20 years ago. Exactly. Yeah, West Side Story, I think, doesn't seem to speak so much to younger people. And we'll get into that more in the podcast. Yeah. So so I went basically into this one as in this is my first experience. So I'm not coming in with the baggage of the original in that understanding. What, what they, joy. The joy, joy of baggage. So basically, I'm not comparing it to any other source material or any other material per se. Uh, so in that sense, what did kind of uh, strike me uh, was a, this felt to me to be a mechanical musical in the sense that a lot of the lead-ins to the songs and the more, I guess, choreographed sequences felt inorganic to me. Uh, it, they could have been more organic, a bit more, you know, in terms of what stories they were telling. Uh, the emotional bits, uh, I would agree with Chris, did work, but they worked more in the second half than the first half. 
Yeah, uh, and the, the sequences were slightly more tailored, but I did enjoy the choreography of the songs. Uh, but beyond that, as a whole musical, it didn't really work for me. So we're going to be talking more about West Side Story going into the podcast as well as Spider-Man and Licorice Pizza. Stay tuned. I feel pretty, oh so pretty. I feel pretty and witty and bright and I pity any girl who isn't me tonight. I feel charming. Oh, so charming, it's alarming how charming I feel And so pretty that I hardly can believe I'm real Welcome back to Film Fight Club where we're talking all things West Side Story Now, it's, it's tricky There's so much of this purely in a te- as a technical standard this is such an improvement on the original. Obviously, there is a move to create more distinct sets. I still think there's an artifice to the sets, which I think mirrors the classicism and kind of broad template of the Romeo and Juliet story. They're looking to create, make it as realistic as in, to use the analogy used earlier in the, in the episode, Eyes, something like Eyes Wide Shut, also set in New York. The quality of the staging and the camera work is gorgeous the numbers are distinct enough i do miss some of the dance fighting because spielberg has gone for a little bit more of a realistic milieu so the fighting is a little more uh, like an actual fight and not greatly so there is still dance fighting but the elements that work here are the ones that are distinct and improve upon the original i'm not just talking about the very bad things about the original as in the, a lot of the casting and how people were made to look like Puerto Ricans when they weren't. I think the casting is much better, but more than the, ca- the quality of the cast being good, the cast have a good dynamic in the original, and you'd miss it because it's so such a whirlwind experience. Tony and the Tony and Maria actors actually don't have a good dynamic. I've seen productions of West Side Story where the Jets work much better as a group, and in particular, Rachel Ziegler. She's great in this. Rachel Ziegler and the actress, I'll bring up her name now, who plays Anita. They're really strong. And importantly, they, and I think a lot of the other cast together, sell a lot of the key numbers that weren't as strongly sold as it could have been in the original. I think there are attractions, but we'll get into those. But there are things that Spielberg has definitely improved upon. There's clearly a story that he has loved his whole life and has wanted to bring to the screen in his very own particular way. It is very visually striking. I really liked the new sets. I think everything is almost too perfect to expand on what I said about the kind of mannered feeling there is to Spielberg's letter films. What I mean is um, the choreography of the camera and the dances. Um, it's so elegant and uh, so perfectly plotted out that it almost feels a bit lifeless. Like it's lacking a kind of spark of spontaneity to it, even though it's often stunning. I think Spielberg's become almost too much of an old pro because I've, I get a lot of uh, this feeling from his recent films as much as I enjoy them at their best. But nonetheless, th- this approach in an age of even in a Matrix movie seeming like it isn't really well thought out visually is, you know, it still pays dividends with some stunning images. Um, and so it's hard to really fault it. I'm just saying that it's lacking something. I still found the movie to be brilliant visually. 
I, uh, especially in the second half, as we'll get into later on. I honestly think this film picks up as it as it gets on, goes on and moves into heavier operatic territory. Speaking to the camera work, it is stunning. There's two particular shots as we go into the mixer, um, and it's mirrored in America, which is also a wonderfully staged number where the camera goes through a corridor. I one of the highlights of the film. Over, actually, I think the highlights are cool, and I feel pretty. We'll get into that later. Um, goes over the dancers and into and through the dancers. The original West Side Story, as clean and beautiful as it was, was quite statically shot. This moves the camera between everyone, and you get. And even though um, there is a rigidity to it, and that they're standing in these big classical Broadway numbers, you do get a feel for the dancing in senses that you don't in the original. There's a tension here, however, I think Chris has touched on, where a lot of classic musicals, and still you see the big stuff staged the lyric theater have a Dickensian approach where it has to be, even if we're dealing with elements that are, you know, scrappy um, in a great expectations way or in the way that the characters in West Side Story would be in real life, you're wanting to see them in this grand epic way. Whereas now I think with musicals and in the Heights is really the key comparison point here. Um, you expect a little bit more of realistic, scrappy, um, back and forth, a bit of a, an element of, again as this has been said not, not just spontaneity but i feel an element of uh, the authenticism that spontaneity brings that is removed from a rigid classic broadway dance number spielberg has gone in the pure classical approach because that is sort of from my gears and that is in fairness what west side story is so i question the the impact there not so much as how the quality of the film is staged i'm glad he didn't switch it up too much but the relevance of an adaptation now i still think this film is relevant and brings a lot but there is just especially in light of the fact that we have filmed versions of the original and we have the 61 version just how needful it is to have a new version i think there is quality but i think you know with a modern audience with wholly different expectations and especially in the post hamilton world where um they hamilton really leans into this you know young scrappy and hungry elements borrow a line from the musical it doesn't it simply isn't as realm as a story and yeah. as it has staged but also the classical romeo and juliet approach broadly speaking we've just seen it so 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 many times i know west side story is the archetype i would actually argue that West Side Story is in history the most famous Romeo and Juliet adaptation. It's probably the most well known. It's great, but I wonder, as enjoyable as this is, to what extent does a new version have both needful and staying, and staying power? I think there is, I, I answer in the positive to great extent, but not to the full extent I think Spielberg and the producers would have liked. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it feels dated, it feels old fashioned. I appreciated, I think he, honestly, um, the Romeo and Juliet aspect, I would say is, is much more timeless than the setting of this film, you know, which it feels, I guess, a bit strange to watch this um, kind of old archetype of racial dispute in 2021. The discussions of hate, though, and cyclical hate as being bad are still very relevant. And it's um, been updated. Tony Kushner has done a pretty good job at making the themes of this film speak more strongly and come out as, as more fresh. The way that they've expanded on Tony, for example, you know, touches on cycles of violence in a better way than the original films ever did, I think. And the way it treats assault is much better than the way assault was treated in the original without that's, question. That's true. Much more mature. It's, it's the same in spirit, but it's much more mature. Yeah. Um, to note just on an interesting bit of history at West Side Story, only learned recently, the original treatment was actually called East Side Story, and it was about Catholics and Jews on the East Side. Um, that's an adaptation I think that would just be so interesting to see, but uh, they did obviously keep with the 
um, original so treatment for this. The thing is, the Puerto Rican and Polish dispute here isn't accurate to the area at the time in, in uh, the 50s, as I understand it. It's just something that was, uh, you know, inspired by reality, but bending it a bit for a musical. So it's funny to see that. I guess maybe it, it's thought that it keeps it timeless to transplant that aspect over. But yeah, a lot of things about, I, I, I don't think this film is offensive or anything like that. I just think it it's a, just feels a little bit strange watching it, it now. It, it's an outdated type form. The bigger question for me outside of the setting though is like, um, is the Romeo and Juliet operatic grandeur style approach of the second half of the story um, outdated as well? Because I've heard a lot of people saying characters are making dumb decisions. I can't empathize with that. It's over the top, it's silly. Whereas I just thought think this is classical, this is opera and Spielberg sells it so much visually and in the brilliant performance of Rachel Zegler that I bought into it. But I don't know, Look, maybe I'm out of touch. Just on the elements of how I, I like the Peter Rican elements in this film. I no, it is the children who are wrong. I felt it felt authentic. I liked that Spanish was used regularly without subtitles in this. So you felt more a part of this world. I didn't need to literally understand everything. I could get what was generally imparted. So that worked for me on the Romeo and Juliet elements. Yeah, absolutely. And a much better, a, a big improvement and something to further distinct from the 61 version With on the, the matter face. of, <laughs> yes, as alluded to earlier, very bad, very bad. And obviously not an element here. Yeah. Um, on the matter of Romeo and Juliet, it's simply the world we're buying into. We're asked to accept this as a premise. We're asked to accept that two, what, 17-year-olds who are good-looking. Who've um, just met. Who've just met, um, fall for each other. Fine. That's that's the logic of the world we're living in. Um, it's not like we're not used to these sort of stories. I'm perfectly fine with it. it that didn't bother me. I think it would have, it, it's a problem in that West Side Story tries to ground it in quite sad realistic violent things that happen later and the original didn't quite handle this as well as this one and that um, another lover is dealt with so much better here by the actresses who play anita and maria um i have to say though just on the performers rachel ziegler she's so goddamn good but elgort is not as good and it's not that they don't have chemistry they do have some chemistry but that he's not just not as good a singer as she is he is operating at a different tenor. She is a well classic opera singer. He operates at um, a lower tenor. So they're while they're okay. Well, she's great, and he's okay individually. Their harmonies simply just don't work. This is distinct for Bernardo and Anita, and it's so important their harmonies work. Not just because there's a story about the romance between the two of them, but something like tonight should be the great crescendo, and it worked and actually worked quite okay in the original because while the actors weren't greatly matched the vote the vocal stylings at least that was what that which was dubbed was i appreciate there was not dubbing in this version so i feel that the some of the secondary cast like bernardo anita if you can call them secondary cast obviously marina marino were great and very charismatic um to that end and there were a number of numbers that were just absolutely spectacular i feel pretty i think it's the definitive version um it's very distinct from the original as it plays out in a store um cool is just so great it's staged on a dock but significantly they changed the, they changed the order of the songs in the 61 version they changed it back to the original musical theater order in this and i think it actually works much more logically and well so i give the film the film is again like the matrix it's distinct enough and different and has a lot of good stuff going on that i um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, despite um, what I feel the, the spark 
and dance fighting elements that didn't quite translate from the original. Also, the Officer Krupke number. I miss the great, crazy visual expressions of the Jets. Let's have more of those in a musical because that's what musicals are all about. As Romeo and Juliet's story, it, it did work. And I did appreciate that the Puerto Rican elements were incorporated in a much better way uh, from what it's I It's not much better way. Like, what did you think of this film, not comparing it to the original you haven't seen? I like what Spielberg is trying to do, but I don't get the point of telling the story again. I mean, that's what I was taking in at the end of the thing, where uh, I understand Spielberg's craft. It was beautiful uh, in the way the staging worked and everything else. But as a story to be told again, I wasn't sure why he picked this film to be done again. Why now? Uh, what's the point? There wasn't enough new newness added to it for me to feel like this is a fresh take in Romeo and Juliet. Uh, I, there was nothing that really captured my attention in a way that told me that Spielberg is back or like he's pushing the cinema form in new directions. Uh, in, terms of musicals, in terms of musicals, I thought there were better musicals done this year, including In the Heights and Tick, Tick, Boom, which actually worked better as musicals as well. So uh, on all counts that I was looking at, just having a fun time at the movies as a musical, having a fun time in terms of Spielberg's craft as a director or telling the story again right now, I felt all of it was insipid from that point of view. Though I did appreciate that as a movie, it felt better staged from a lot of films this year. So I felt from a Spielberg's direction point of view, it's a beautifully directed film, though it felt cold and a bit removed. I yeah, think I, I, well, I feel a bit of a sense of remove watching this film. Um, as I said, that sometimes it's a bit too perfect and it's a bit too old fashioned and it's a, but as I said before, I was still swept up in, I guess, the grandeur of it. Hmm. But um, what do you think, Lynn? I think that if you don't like musicals, you're not gonna like this. I think if you like music, and I know it's a very base thing to say, but I don't think it will sell people on the form who aren't already endeared to it. I think people who like musicals will appreciate this for that it is a, like any other production, a distinct production. And I know that sounds like a base criticism, but I, th I think that's how, I, th I think that's the metric that people should judge whether they should see this film by. Mm -hmm. As to the Romeo and Juliet element, I don't think it's the overarching deal breaker as to whether people should or shouldn't see this film. I think there are more predominant elements related to the performances, um, the quality of the staging, and also the overall thematic elements. Um, as Chris alluded to, the film does push um, the element of themes of racism over and above um, the tragedy of young love. And on the tragedy of young love, it, it has to be said that I'm, we're not going to ruin the ending, but the ending is distinct in respects from how West, from how wrote the ending of Romeo and Juliet plays out. And West Side Story had such cultural impact. I actually prefer the ending to how Romeo and Juliet plays out. The musical has had such an impact that modern versions of Romeo and Juliet are traditionally staged in a way more akin to West Side Story, which is why I say it's the most famous adaptation. Um, while we, I, I think there is value in this, even if it is greatly retreading old ground and will and will is only really endearing to, to the, yeah, in fairness, many, many people There's who are really into it. to like material. And, but something we, we haven't spoken about is just how we were talking about this, the cinematography in terms of how the camera weaves, but there's moments in this that are just so beautifully shot. There's a sequence um, with a shawl in Bernardo's and Anita's apartment where you're looking at the lovers um, through the shawl, the morning light. It's absolutely stunning. It's probably my favorite moment in the film aside from Cool and I Feel Pretty. There's an amazing scene with a puddle. Reflections and mirrors are used spectacularly well. It's reliable Spielberg. He knows what he's doing. It's visually just it's a visual genius. constantly great to look at. Yeah, it's 
if if you if you're a Spielberg, if you want to see a good well shot Spielberg film, then go no further. Like you, you'll love it. It's if this film is going to bomb as hard in Australia as it will in the US, go see it quickly because the because our box office tends to mirror theirs pretty closely. Go see it quickly because the spectacle of Spielberg's artistry deserves the big screen. As um, and also, a lot of this film is shot quite wide. To pick up on the nuances of the performance, you're going to want to see it on the big screen. On that, yeah. And on that, just the, I guess my final thoughts on the film, the rumble sequence, also beautifully shot, the use of shadows in this as the jets of the sharks move toward each other has been very dramatic. heavily used. Really, you know, the, the drama really in sings in that scene for me. In promotional material. I love the particular setting of the salt storage area like really really clever it just that symbolism of winter is coming it's foreboding it's here really really good and i like that at the beginning of the rumble sequence between the tonight reprise and rumble there's just a moment of black and it's spielberg permitting theaters i'm not going to do it but should they so wish or should audience so we should watch you at home to have a natural intermission when intermission comes in the musical and i like that he's facilitated this um the original had like a lot of music musicals back then a classic overture and um and else and this is just a hark back to that which i think is a nice part of filming i don't have an issue with films having intermissions i wish more did and this at least kind of acknowledges that and i'm i say good for that how great is uh riff in this new version yeah he's good he's really really he, he has the original riff like he's a great ballet dancer but he didn't feel rough. He didn't. I didn't feel threatened by this guy. This is a gang leader in New York. This guy, this guy should scare a, the shit out of you. This guy has a violent energy. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but but yeah, while still being an empathetic character. So did Bernardo. This is the thing. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a very um, well-cast film. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. The guy who played Bernardo in the West 61 version was famous for playing Riff in the Broadway version. So I think he was actually quite good. He had a bit of a, felt like there was a violent element. It's a hard thing because you have to marry this classical ballet style of dancing, um, which uh, with this very violent element and the guy who plays Riff, yeah, he does it really well. Look, the, the new coming cast, they're really good. I wish they'd honestly cast someone we didn't know as opposed to Ansel Elgort who could sing and dance better than he can there's no reason especially with Spielberg at the helm of this there's no reason to have a famous star and moreover with Marino they've written the new role for her she's so wonderful in this um she's I like her a lot yeah. yeah she's brilliant but yeah um I, I thought Elgort despite just you know speaking only of his performance and not the um horrible reasons why he's pretty much cancelled we'll see if this marks a comeback for him I didn't think he was bad at Wait, all Elgort is cancelled he's cancelled he's cancelled Let's not get into that now. Okay, wow. But uh, there's, I'll, I'll there's a whole can of worms. In the, but uh, he, he's, yeah. Elgort, um, I don't not think- I'm not yet. Yeah, it's, sorry, go, go ahead, Chris. <laughs> Elgort is not bad, I don't think. I thought he was actually quite good. I just think the other performers are better. More striking, more charismatic, and better performers. But he carries it fairly well. Uh, Spielberg- I, I wish I'd take credit for something. Spielberg was actually the one who made it a very interesting point about Elgort. He says, I cast Elgort because he has the ability to switch between a man and boy visage very quickly, which is something the Tony character really does require. The guy who played I Tony did. in the original was so badly cast in that he was like, what, 30 something, or at least looked it. And he couldn't obviously portray this figure of this young guy, Indian who just falls in love and, um, Elgort can sell that a little bit as well as selling a guy who was a gang leader and now kind of wants to move away and is a hard guy and who's done time. It's a really difficult role to cast. 
I think Elgort is good. I just don't believe he's on the quality of performative level that as his other co-stars, which is fine because they're obviously a more experienced uh, with tradition with theater dancing singing than than he does. So that's to be expected. Um, but then again, but people just cast him. So here we are. That is West Side Story. It is in cinemas come Boxing Day. The next film we're talking about is Spider-Man No Way Home. Yes, uh, it's the third film in the Spider-Man, the new Spider-Man setup uh, with Tom Holland as a private role as Peter Parker, aka Spider-Man, The Friendly Neighborhood, directed by John Watts and is starring a whole bunch of people reprising their roles, such as Melissa Tomei playing Aunt May, John Favreau playing Happy Hogan, and Zendaya uh, uh, playing MJ, Michelle Jones Watson, as it's been clarified on Mary Jane. Uh, and uh, we have a whole bunch of cameos uh, because of a multiverse thing. More than cameos. More than cameos, actually. Uh, roles which are quite substantive and which have been spoiled. So in this review... We, it's, we think it's fair game. We think it's fair game that we're going to discuss things that already are out there in the public domain about which cameos are there and which aren't. Uh, and as part of the discussion, if you do not wish to be spoiled for those cameos and not uh, hear this discussion out, what happens basically... This film picks up directly after the events of the last Spider-Man film where Spider-Man's identity was revealed by Mysterio, a.k.a. Jake Gyllenhaal, to be Peter Parker. And the film picks up right there that the whole world knows who Spider-Man is, a.k.a. Peter Parker. Uh, and Tom Holland's character then goes to Doctor Strange, Benedict Cumberbatch, to basically make the world forget that I was ever Spider-Man. And in the course of casting the spell, things go wrong, the multiverse opens, and you have everyone from every universe who ever knew who Peter Parker is, that he's Spider-Man, come into this one universe of the MCU, including villains and other Spider-Men, essentially. Villains include Alfred Molina reprising his role as Dr. Octavius, Otto Octavius, also Willem Dafoe reprising his role as the Green Goblin, there's Jamie Foxx as Electro, there is Sandman and uh, Reed Lizard, Lizard as everyone's Lizard. favorite Lizard. Yeah. yeah, everyone's favorite, the Lizard. Well, not really, but he doesn't have much to do in this film. Didn't have much to do with the previous films either. What did you think? Okay, so Virat said something which uh, struck me, which he said this is his favorite of the three films we have spoken about so far. Yes, I, but I didn't think that in a week that we're covering The Matrix, West Side Story, uh, liquid pizza. Yeah, pizza. I haven't seen liquid pizza to be honest, but in the week that we're covering all these films, this is Spider Man, uh, Far From Home, No Way Home, sorry, um, you know, one, one of those ones. No Way Home is going to be my favorite film of the week. This is truly a surprise, and what maybe it's because uh, of the break from Marvel that I've taken for a while, and coming back to Marvel was actually felt fresher than expected. But I do think this film has some new tricks up its sleeve. It's doing something fresh and it's breaking the template that Marvel has set up. And from that perspective, I think I really enjoyed this as a fun Spider-Man film. The kind of fun that you would want to have by watching a Spider-Man movie without being blocked down by superhero expectations. So I think from that perspective, it is still a low-key fun film. Yes, it has the same tropes of being PGI heavy final act, final battle issues, but from a perspective of a nostalgia driven vehicle, which is truly has some stakes, 
people do lose people. There is a sentimentality to it, which is akin to the original genesis of Spider-Man of, you know, a teenager finding that he has to finally grow up. It is truly sticking to that roots of somebody realizing that they have to sacrifice and what sacrifice truly means. And in that journey, you have other Spider-Man, aka Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire helping him on that journey. From that perspective, I felt this was a more emotionally sincere effort from Marvel, which is the one thing we often criticize Marvel to be, where it does pull its punches when it comes to emotional sincerity. Yeah, that's it. It does um, lean into the kind of the real great power comes great responsibility, personal sacrifice aspect of Spider-Man and some of the more bittersweet soap opera-esque elements. Um, For the first time really since the Raimi films, and I would say the ending of this film definitely seems to be trying to capture a vibe similar to what uh, the Raimi films hit at 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 the more bittersweet points. Yeah. Um, It's that that real like the the weight of being Spider-Man, right? Uh, I I also agree that this movie is more engaging than Marvel typically is in that it commits to having some sense of stakes and a sense of darkness to it, which the Marvel movies in their um, insistence on lightness have, you know, sort of felt so bland as to be disposable in the past. This has some weight to it. I'll acknowledge that. So a lot of, uh, you know, People who know my hatred of the MCU will hear what I'm about to say and say, what do you want? I basically just didn't care for this film. It did everything I've been asking them to do. And you still didn't care for it. Okay. Still didn't care for it. That's it. I, I think I was, as I was watching it, I just felt like the filmmaking itself even though there are ideas that could have been nice and there's great performances supporting them. Man. Just from a filmmaking point of view, I did feel the opening sequence, that sort of rushed energy mm. and the way the, the camera follows all the characters from a rush point of view when Peter Parker's identity is revealed, that whole sequence was fantastic and something very new from a Marvel point of view, which is often criticized for doing short reverse short grand sequences. It was more dynamic. And the, the Spider-Man movies have had a bit more visual experimentation than uh, Marvel does has had in most of their movies so far. This one probably does it the best yet. But um, it's still just in both from a filmmaking point of view and from a screenwriting point of view, even uh, it's very well performed. The actors do a lot to sell these emotions and the, yeah. the turns of the script. They're, they're, there's some real, there's touching performances in this film. But it just still, to me, feels processed in some way. I, like, I mean, like it's, I, it's, it's still a Marvel film. So even yeah. when it comes to risk-taking, it's not taking really an ambitious but risk. I don't need them to take risks, to be honest. I, um, I could go with a film with a similar storyline to this. Yeah. If I felt like it were handled with a little bit more spark, it's, this is almost a similar um, criticism to a lot of to what I was saying about Spielberg's direction in West Side Story, which is just it's so perfected at the thing that it's being that it feels like there isn't. So you felt this was mechanical to a degree. Yeah, it feels mechanical. Spielberg okay. still has more verve and ability to surprise me, and West Side Story ended up winning me over. This never really did. It's I think I'm just so used to the the style of that of filmmaking in Marvel now that. I've, I've just switched off. I've just become bored, even as, as they- I, 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 still, I, still, I still felt uh, that this had a 
deliberate slowness of pace in especially for the emotional scenes to land, yeah. which is different to a Marvel movie template from what we've come used to. Whereas in a lot of the Marvel movie scenes, we don't really get the weight of the emotional sincerity to land. And in this film, yeah. it really slowed down the pace for us to take in the emotional moments and, and really realize is... what the hero's arc was supposed to be. Yeah, it is better than what they usually do in that regard, for sure. I'm just, I'm sure. Well, right now, I'm not trying to compare it. this film to be like as one of the best films of the year, but it did surprise me that Marvel I still had it. the ability to uh, reinvent itself and do something, offer something yeah. truly interesting if it wanted to. And it did give me hope that maybe I may enjoy, truly enjoy a Marvel film coming in the near future. Yeah, and yeah. it also tells me that maybe I should take a break every now and then from Marvel movies and come back after a bit of a break because I do feel fatigued. They are so this similar. Probably a good film to come back to. They are so similar that they do. We missed three. Let's be clear. Like we missed the Eternals. But we did cover a little bit of Black Widow and there was, what was the other one? Chang-Chi. We never saw Chang-Chi. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I said that I wouldn't cover this film, that I was done with Marvel. And once again, I've gone back on my word because, uh, I, you know, I wanted to cover it for the show after hearing the more positive word on it and hearing Virat's intriguing statement that it was his favorite of the three. But wait, um, do you, would you agree that did you did you like uh, West Side Story more than this? Much, much more, yeah. Wow. Okay. All right. Yeah, and I, I, the, it's a. The but Matrix, you, you do agree this is better than the Matrix. Overall, it probably is, but yeah. I enjoyed. But in like, it's a much slicker, much better put together production. Where and it, um, the Matrix is very in a lot of ways is a mess, but the Matrix. Also in terms of, I, I thought in terms of the ideas in the film. Spider-Man actually had more ideas. Uh, I disagree. The, the Matrix's opening act, for me at least, and uh, also the the, mo- the moments where it the came. First hour of the Matrix is amazing, but it doesn't justify two and a half hours. And no, remember, not at all. The, both, but, both films are two and a half hours long. Sure. I think over the runtime, this film has more to but, do and more to offer. I wasn't super it. engaged with either of them, but the Matrix engaged me and impressed me with the ideas in the intro. For the, a good 45 minutes to hour of the yeah. film. The first hour and, of the uh, film was amazing for The Matrix. Yeah. yeah, the moments that I appreciated in The Matrix were much uh, better than for me than in terms of just pure enjoyment than anything yeah. I found in Spider-Man. But yeah, the Spider-Man also didn't have anything as terrible as what's in The Matrix. Exactly. So the, it's, it's, it's a mixed it bag. Right? You, 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 can take, you can take the ambitiousness or you can take the truly horrible stuff from the matrix which is not their own spider-man exactly yeah, uh, yeah. but the, this film um the thing is the new characters uh uh sorry i know what i'm going to say hold on i'm just leaving some silence for editing recently so i'll be able to find this point through. i think i'm just too cynical to enjoy marvel movies at this point yeah um it, like i, I look agree. at you i look are. at this yeah well no but hear me out I look at this film where we've opened a multiversal portal, right? So all the infinite versions of Peter Parker that could be out there um, are dangling in space-time waiting to pour into our world, as Doctor Strange says, right? But who should come through except... And the only, only version that comes through are the versions characters that we we've know. seen in yeah. previous films. Yeah, all suspension of disbelief is gone for me. I say, okay, so this is a fan service exercise. It is, uh, it is. Yeah, this is a fan service exercise. This isn't a bit of imaginative world building. Um, I don't like what it stands for. I don't like this idea that even more so, the Matrix speaks to this as well, but um, even more so than something like the Lego movie um, or the Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, more on that in a bit, this movie is heralding an age of blockbuster franchises becoming about themselves. 
and about celebrating themselves and about the inward recursion of nostalgia forever, something that the Matrix Resurrections comments on but isn't able to escape in itself. I don't like this idea of here's a movie that's about celebrating the, the previous versions of Spider-Man on screen. However, there, there are some dividends to that. Um, it could have been handled in an enjoyable way. But as I said, I'm just such a cynic. I hear this plot directive and I immediately, I stop yeah, believing yeah, I mean, this I, I, I see I this whole thing is being transparent as I, a corporate ploy. I agree with you, but let me offer you a kind of point. Uh, the, the kind of point of this obviously is, yes, inward recursion and giving yourself a pat on the back is, can be indulgent. And I do see the point. But at the same time, what I do appreciate is that we are living at a point in cinema where a lot of people, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, uh, their first introduction to Spider-Man is only Tom Holland's Spider-Man. And they haven't realized what has come before them, even though this film is specifically targeted for people who probably have grown up with Sam Raimi's version of Spider-Man and then Ooh. Andrew Garfield's version of Spider-Man. Hold this on. Specifically guarded and targeted at the nostalgics, per yeah. se. But at the same time, I do believe, especially by bringing in uh, characters like Dr. Octopus, no, no, not Octopus, <laughs> Octavius, and, and the Green Goblin. Dr. Octopus is his villain name. Yeah, there we go. Uh, in, in that sense, uh, was interesting because, A, you get to see great performances in a Marvel movie again. I'll get to honestly, that. They were, they were amazing. I'll get to that. They were amazing. Can I touch on that? Yes, definitely. The performances of Willem Dafoe and uh, Alfred Molina. Alfred Molina was so good that it just draws attention to how terrible the villains have been in every Marvel movie. These exactly. Guys come exactly. In I mean, I mean, yeah. they saved they, the film for me. They come Willem in Dafoe so is so good as a. Yeah, Molina's really moving, yeah. and Defoe manages to exercise both his uh, demonic creepiness. Nobody does it better than him, and he pulls some incredible <laughs> expressions in this movie. I as mean, well, as, he's loving it. He, but he hits so much fun. Yeah, it yeah. also allows him to show you his vulnerability and warmth. Yeah, he's a fascinating actor, and it's actually a great role and performance for him. And the all the Spider Men, Toby, uh, uh, all the Spider Men, I think, in their own way, manage to give moving performances. But I still, I still think Toby Maguire kind of found it in, though he does have a, re a redeeming scene. He's charming. Uh, he, right he towards makes, the end where he does convey he a lot through just uh, facial that's expressions. It. There's something to the nostalgic buzz of this movie. There's something yeah. charming about just seeing Toby Maguire back as the goof, as a grown-up version of the goofy, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man from the Rainbow yeah. films. Andrew the, Garfield does more heavy lifting, as does Tom Holland. Yeah, but I do, I do believe Andrew Garfield did surprise me by how much he added to his he role did. and his incarnation. Uh, he's a brilliant actor and he's relishing another chance to play Spider-Man. And, uh, but again, the, okay, two things to this for me to continue yeah. being an uber cynic. One, um, okay, uh, notably, yeah, like I said, it reminds you how bad the Marvel villains have been. And what's yes. funny is the villains from the Raimi films are great here. The yes. villains from the Amazing Spider-Man movies are just oh, as boring and horrible as they were yeah. In, yeah. in those films. Yeah. Right? Anyway, the, the problem is, even though there's something nice about it, my mind just goes, okay, we're using this multiverse plot to give audiences emotional catharsis and payoff to unfinished film series from decades ago. Like, I don't know. I... I the transparent, the, there's a transparency to me behind the corporate objectives behind this movie 
I agree. I mean, I mean that's never going to go away, though. That's never going to go away. Marvel as a corporate enterprise is always going to have IP and control over the kind of stories they want to tell. Yeah. So I think we just have to accept that going into a Marvel movie. Uh, I mean, that's something that we. Uh, have but to I don't want to accept that. It's not a standard we should accept. I, I, I should. We should never accept that film would just come at us from a low standard. There's something I've been trying to talk about the whole episode: the idea that there Thanks, isn't man. a low. Bar. There, we, we should look to both the standards that have been set in the past, but the standards that of the particular films that immediately preceded that. Why should we go in expecting that it's going to be just a cavalcade of IP at a, at a checklist of moments? And that's why I, and that's why when this film initially came, got, when the trailer came out, I was like, oh, I don't know. I'm kind of interested. I kind of mm-hmm. want to see it. I will see it just because of Alfred Molina and Willem Dafoe. But there's no reason that the bar for quality cinema should be checked with a theme park ride-esque. Now we've seen all the Scooby-Doo characters. Uh, Let's wait for the next one. Yeah. Well, actually, that is a line in the film. Scooby-Doo this shit. Oh, God. And and this is why <laughs> I, I, I haven't seen Spider-Man, so I can't compare. But I say I like The Matrix because, Resurrections, because it is something that is distinct. It is something yeah. that is offering a story that I wasn't expecting that was in... I actually, I was. It wasn't a rehash of the original. It did rehash on the original, but the film itself was not a rehash of the themes and tropes that we saw 22 years ago. So good for them. At That's its all. best, the Matrix is a antidote to the formula blandness that we're getting in blockbuster filmmaking these days. But yeah, the thing is, I thought I was having when I was giving that rant about how I can't buy into yeah. this is that it's just not distinct enough. Or sorry, it's just not. Yeah, it's just not distinct enough and developed as its own entity for me to distinguish it from the IP directives. There's things that hold me back from buying into this world. Like why does Doctor Strange, after all he's gone through, agree to help the kid with this juvenile request? The the movie does a decent job of selling it, but I still thought, "Mm, really? You know, or why does J. Jonah Jameson and Alex Jones type figure have his news story broadcast directly in the middle of Times Square. It's just that's, hard for me to buy it, into this. That, that's because it's trying to call back to the IP of like, that's, oh, that's the image you remember, right? So we're just going to use that image. I know, but exactly, like, that's the thing. Yeah. Fan service and callbacks trump believable world building. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. Though I, I, do, I, I do kind of say well, one thing in, in, in defense of the film. Uh, I was sad to realize, and this kind of epiphany joining in me, that it's taken us three films with the new Spider-Man, Tom Holland, for us to get at something basic about his character, which is that he has to experience personal sacrifice for him to grow. Yeah. You know what gets, you know what gets me? The idea that you talk, I hear you guys talking about this, and you're saying the best parts are J. Jonah Jameson, Alfred Lee, Willem Dafoe, so bits from the previous films. How cool yeah, would exactly. it be? Yeah, exactly. It's true. It's true. The cool best parts are the previous films. There's nothing... Like in the original, there was just a character actor like J.K. Cinnamons who just went full out and did something crazy with one of these characters and took a chance and it was really good. And then if if they were good, they would continue. Like in fairness, Tony Stark, uh, Robert Downey Jr. was in the first Iron Man. He was a breath of fresh air. It was revolutionary. Well, that's it. Marvel don't take risks like that anymore. They'll bring in these people and uh, unfortunately highlight how boring their own alternatives that they've offered up have been. And can I just say, as a general principle, it's fine for 
a movie studio and franchise to evolve. In 2008, Marvel had to take a risk because they didn't take a risk on this and The Incredible Hulk, the studio would have gone under. It very nearly did. Now they're just the status quo. That's fine, which means other things are able and should be able to come through. The problem is that there, the reports of the other films that should have been playing when Spider-Man was playing being taken over by additional Spider-Man screenings. I appreciate demand, supply, et cetera, et cetera, but cinemas should have the facility for long-term longevity to play multiple types of films. It's a very short-sighted commercial and artistic approach, which I think is bad and which um, obviously Marvel aren't going to object to, which is a I major can, problem in and of itself. Okay. I can complain about the directives of Marvel all day, but back, back to Spider-Man. I mean, back, back to that. I mean, uh, it's so a fair criticism. I, as I was saying, I think I do kind of lament the fact that there's something as basic as a Spider-Man character trait that he has to experience personal sacrifice has taken us three films in new Tom Holland direction to get at that very basic tenet of that character and for Tom Holland to give a fair and pretty heavy dramatic performance. Tom uh, Holland is excellent. Should have, should have come a lot earlier in the franchise. To be honest. Yeah. It should have Tom taken us three films for us to establish that basicness about Spider-Man. For him to actually truly become Spider-Man. They got Spider-Man fundamentally wrong in this franchise by doing what I'm sure seemed like a good idea at the time in... Uh, establishing it as being strongly tied to the MCU and not a continuation of Sony's efforts separate from Marvel um, by making him the basically adopted son of Tony Stark. But that ruined the dynamic of Spider-Man. The idea is um, it undid the goodwill of Tom Holland being an actual teenager for the first time on screen playing Spider-Man with you know his vulnerability. Um, the extra when I first saw him in Civil War. I thought like, wow, Peter Parker's really a kid. You know, that makes you afraid for his safety. Like it adds something to the character. Um, and yet they give him all, the, all these high-tech resources and military industrial complex backing, right? A lot of this movie ultimately feels like a wild goose chase that's designed to reestablish the Peter Parker character as what he should have been from the beginning. You know, a, a kid struggling with a sense of being somewhat alone in the world and uh you know who's gone through great suffering and has a you know has a cross to bear and he has a he, hey, he has a very big moral choice to make and uh, the stakes are real in terms of uh, uh they're not just life and death i mean uh, there's a question of he has the choice of other people's lives in his hands mm. quite literally and also the fact that uh he has to undergo some real personal suffering. Ultimately, I think it feels like Marvel needed to go back to their previous Spider-Man films to remember movies need to have stakes, movies need to have weight, and who the Peter Parker character is meant to be. And it's a shame that it's taken this IP nostalgia trip to bring us to that point. That is Spider-Man No Way Home. It is in cinemas now. The next film we're talking about is Paul Thomas Anderson, the new PTA. It is Licorice pizza it is starring Haim the band Alana Haim is the main star but her entire family are in this in particular her sisters and Cooper Hoffman the son of Philip Seymour Hoffman which is uh, quite emotive for those who have seen the numerous collaborative projects between Philip Seymour Hoffman and uh, this is Philip Seymour Hoffman and PTA it is set in the 70s it is about a romance between two persons played by Alana Haim and Cooper Hoffman. The Haim character is quite, uh, Cooper Hoffman's a teenager, Alana Haim is a little bit older, and 
it is a both character and plot driven drama in that we see their romance play out against the backdrop of events of the 70s America as we have similarly seen PTA depict in films. Now, this, I was going to make a similar, we'll talk about the film called Unforgivable in the new year, and I'll make a similar criticism of both these films in that the characters are so well drawn and there is such a disparate and dissonant and distinct quality in terms of the plotting. It Mm -hmm. is uh, chapter-esque and the plot exists in whole parts just to service character growth and there are these vignettes which are great on their own but what otherwise could have been an episodic approach to the 70s and to try to ingratiate us in this world would have been better had the film not otherwise the focus not otherwise been on these two main individual characters it's a structure which pta has been using in all his films from there will be blood onward Save it, I'd say, to an extent, Phantom Thread, which felt a little bit more buoyed down and structured to me. But he's been using this approach of vignettes where the three-act structure or much dramatic momentum or flow doesn't matter so much. It's a, it's a hangout movie. Plot events are happening, but you know some bits go short, some bits so long. It's more about just spending time and getting to know these characters. I guess I just didn't find these characters so compelling to completely, even though they they are interesting and unusual characters, I felt a little bit held at a remove from them by the way that PTA structured this movie. Um, And I couldn't, for large points of this movie, get beyond this kind of emotional wall I felt. And it'll, look, I really like this movie, but it is just a bit too rambling, I think. It's rambling in that some of the vignettes are in service of the of the plot and work and um, there's a great bit involving a truck and bradley cooper which i thoroughly enjoyed but then when the film changes direction or to make a broader societal point i think it loses a great deal of momentum um, after the truck bit it goes i think the film just stops having momentum until the very very end there is a whole section dealing with politics and local politician which just as well could have been excised from the film i found I, it very interesting but um on in its own it culminates but- though I thought there was the way that it ties into the very ending of the film, I thought was very nice. It's just that, again, could there have been another rewrite? This is the question I I find myself asking a lot when I look at films these days. Could there have been another rewrite that um, lost a lot of the the extra material to just focus in on the bit that is directly relevant? And I say this, and my favorite parts of the film were um, Alana Haim, who's just great addition to her. I mean, she's a great actress in addition to being a great performer. Her family yeah. and her sisters are really good in this. They were my favorite element of the film collectively. Though the best elements, I criticized the vignettes, but the best elements were the vignettes. Bradley Cooper was outstanding as, I'm sorry, I've forgotten the real life person's name. Um, uh, Barbara Streisand's partner. John Peters. Uh, John Peters. There's an amusing reference to the hilarious Kevin Smith talks about his experience with John Peters writing Superman video in this. I'm sure it has to be a direct reference to that. So if you haven't seen that video, look it up on YouTube and then chuckle to yourself when you get to that part in the cinema. And Sean Penn as not William Holden yeah. uh, in a restaurant um, on a motorcycle. He's just absolutely spectacular. Oh, so I say really? that there's a dissonance between uh, the core elements of this film and the predominant approach. Um, I enjoyed those bits. It's just, I. it sounds like I'm describing this uh, Linklater-esque love letter to the 70s when- Richard Linklater what it is. special thanks in the ending credits. Not surprised. There's a lot of uh, everybody wants some um, days and confused elements here. Yeah. 
but really it's a romance between these two characters and I could just as much have spent time watching them on screen the whole element of the Coop Hoffman character being a minor actor as much as yes I can buy that this one character is an actor in this universe fine but it feels like it's in service of being able to bring motifs from 70s television into this rather than developing him as a character so I, I enjoyed the bits where they have like they, they reenact 70s style tv shows mm. but in all realness that's what P P pta engineered the plot and characters to service these sorts of things including a, a show that he wanted to demonstrate rather than actually developing on the between the characters so a lot of the heavy lifting comes down to the leads in particular Haim, mm. who's really good it's just that he had two very distinct things he wanted to achieve in one film and they don't really work that well together. Yeah, I, um, I, I just, like I said, it's a bit too rambling. I'd add it's a little bit too shaggy, but speaking about some of the things that I do think work about this film, tonally, it's a really interesting film. Um, I spoke to a bunch of people and they didn't see this, but I feel like there's really quite a darkness and a sadness to it. For the most part, the characters in this film are not good to each other. Um, people seem at odds with each other. People seem annoyed. Um, there's a tension in the air. And uh, if you've seen Punch Drunk Love and uh, Adam Sandler's Many Sisters and the frustration they bring him, there's a bit of that element in this film as well. That, um, so that makes the moments of romanticism between these two characters, I think, be more strongly felt because you know it makes those moments sing because I think this film presents an idea of uh, two people being able to come together as a miracle in, in a world that is going in a dark direction. I'm not sure if I'm, I was just carrying too much of a depressed mood into this screening, because again, I spoke to other critics who saw it and they didn't feel this energy in it, but did you find it a little, even though, don't get me wrong, it's presented as a hangout movie and a comedy. Did you feel that darkness in it, Glenn? I didn't actually. I didn't feel this film had an edginess to it until the end of the film. What about the moment with the police early on? Again, I didn't feel that was dark. I felt that was just in service more of being a little bit wacky. I think it's a little bit of a harsh comparison, but that scene kind of reminded me of elements of Booksmart. The, right. uh, the police scene, it didn't feel, they didn't feel like there was any real sense of danger. Moreover, it's just over and so quickly and the explanation is just so stupid that again it's in service of this motif they want to bring in rather than actually telling us something about the characters can you imagine if pta had found a more creative way to show a bit of tension and mm. longing and um connection between the two main leads it could have been so much about like, you could have literally had seen for instance to impart the same idea sh having a conflict with a worker at a diner or a place that they went out on a date which would have shown i mean the whole point of the sure. scene is to show that the Alanheim character cares about this person and wants to stand up for them there are many more realistic ways in services they could have done so um and that said writing problems aside pta is a hell of a director he really knows when to use close-ups and how to mine the maximum dramatic weight from them and the sequence is moving. He knows how to use, how to film Alana Heim's face. He knows how to film Cooper Hoffman's face. He knows when to go to those close-ups. Throughout the film, there's some devastating close-ups. It's always been one of PTA's strengths, I think. Um, he's, he's just a hell of a director and a hell of a director of actors. The waterbed stuff also just kind of felt, I mean, this is the sort of thing that was dealt with better in Kajillionaire 
Uh, why? It, we, I guess it's seventies trappings, and it ties into yeah, other events in the seventies. Like, it's like this checklist of stuff you have to have in the seventies. And PT is such a good director that I go along with it. But again, he's made two films here. He's made his Linklater-esque seventies love letter, and he's made his romance between two people of dissonant ages, dissonant experiences, and they don't tie together as well as I think he believes it does. It's an interesting collage, though, for sure, and it's an interesting approach. Um, I, I, I think it, he's going for this kind of broad spectrum of like um, just getting to know two characters and the role they have in each other's lives, big sprawling slice of life, as opposed to making a really driven forward momentum romance. That's not to say that it fully works. I, th I really, I think this film needs tightening. It needs focusing. Um, it, it's way too long at 133 minutes. Oh, way too long. Again, you could have cut the whole politician bit as far as I'm concerned. Um, but again, I, I feel like there's some moving dividends that come from that sequence. It, again, it's just a question of, is it necessary? It's like a French plantation. I, uh, I'm just saying that to stir you up. I know you love the French plantation in <laughs> Apocalypse Now. Yeah, that's good. But, but, but that's an epic where the environment is more in, is intrinsic to the character's story and much more neatly tied in as it was in Conrad's work. Uh, here, he just wants to show, he, wa he wants to achieve a number of things. It's okay for a film to be expansive in service of one ideation, and this was not. That we'll discuss it. Sorry, yeah. We'll discuss this movie more when Virat gets a chance to see it and add his two cents. Right. That is Licorice Pizza. It is in cinemas from Boxing Day, as is West Side Story in The Matrix Resurrections. Spider-Man is in cinemas now. We'll be back in the new year talking movies. Ah, be safe. It's a, there's, there'll be a lot of streaming, I believe, over the holidays. Cinemas are still open. Um, and well, so far, hopefully. Well, we'll see how long they remain open. That, that's a, that's a, okay, that's speculation, but there's no indication that cinemas are going to close anytime soon. Uh, yeah, enjoy movies. Just it's a big safe. question mark. So, uh, you know, enjoy life. The other big question mark. Yeah, enjoy life. Life Day, as in Star, the Star Wars universe. Life oh, Day yeah. is coming up. Yeah, sure watch the, don't watch the Star Wars holiday special. God help us. Or do. No, don't. It, it really Roll is that actually, dice. <laughs> it's actually unwatchable. Have you, have, you see, have you seen it? I fell asleep. It yeah, is unwatchable. I, My brain it, wouldn't do it. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't. I'm also over Star Wars, so. Yeah. It's sad. Is it on Disney Plus? There'll be other franchises we can get into. But seriously, is, is the Star Wars Holiday Special on Disney Plus? I think so. Nice. Um, because didn't they reference to the Mandalorian? Yeah. It is in universe. Like, <laughs> let's not. Oh dear. No. Let, what, what, watch something else. Watch. Take a chance on something. Like some sci-fi you haven't seen. Like Dune. If you haven't seen Dune, go see Dune. Dune's great. Bye guys. Go watch Christmas movies. Merry Christmas. Bye. Happy holidays. Good I shot ultimate Christmas movie. Yeah, go watch Ice White Shots, much better than and Batman. Great Christmas movie. Of Return. course, Die Hard, yada yada yada. Go watch Ice White Shots, no, the best Christmas movie. Except anything except Love Actually, because that's a true. Love Actually is actually a good movie with some problems. Um, I, I always love that the best relationship in the film is uh, the Martin Freeman one. It's such it's so sweet. There's good there's good things about Love Actually. Don't 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 hang on Love Actually. Actually? All right. Actually. Bye. Bye. Later, dudes.